0: My name is James Cook. I have not seen my children since they were taken seven years ago this month, which is July, and they were taken in July 2014 from Minnesota, United States, and they were taken to Japan. I've been through the Hague return order process twice, and I've been awarded returns twice. I've also been through local courts. I have sole custody of my children, multiple return orders, and all of that, and I still have not seen my children. I'm still trying to get a hold of them and get them returned through all legal means. And this is my story. You
1: can be just like me. you double. All you have to do is ask to see your family. You have so much to see. In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to James Cook, whose children have been abducted to Japan back in 2014. If you just Google Japan child abduction, you will see his name appear in the Google results because he has gotten two written orders from Japanese hay courts and five written orders from the US courts, yet he failed to reunite with them. We will get deeper into what exactly happened and why Japan is the black hole of abduction in this episode. Now, before we get to the episode, I would like to inform all our listeners that Glenn Wood, someone we have had in this podcast before, is retrying his paternity harassment or Patahara case in the Tokyo High Court this September. Recently, I had another chance to talk to him about the harassment that he had gone through while he was at uh, Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley. And here's a quick soundbite from that particular conversation.
2: Well, I, as I mentioned, I've been in Japan for a long time and I, I love Japan. And I was a manager in the company at mitsubishi UFJ Morgan Stanley Securities, and I took my management responsibilities very seriously, and I still take them very seriously and when i When I looked back and i I saw instances of of um, women being harassed, for example, whether it was sexual harassment or or whether it was maternity related harassment, there was a there was a pattern of women disappearing after they got pregnant and um, you know, firing pregnant women is 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 an old trick that I think we we've seen in many of our our countries. I remember many years ago my mom actually talking about it um, when I was a kid and and in Canada. And you know, from management perspective, if they can fire pregnant women, then for a short period of time, you know, they might have, uh, in their opinion, a stronger workforce because uh, they don't have the liabilities of having a woman take time off for maternity leave and and then have 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 the children getting sick and and the worker having to take time off to take care of the children but you know at the end of the day that's that's the responsibility of of society and if we can't have children if parents if parents can't have children then we won't have a next generation of workers we won't have a next generation of 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 a country and indeed i think we see the glimpses of that perhaps in Japan where the birth rate has been so low for so long that we don't allow workers to have children and we don't allow families to be families and to take take time, whether it's women or men, to spend time with families and to have children. And so in my situation, when, when I was fired uh, for taking a short period of time off when I had a family emergency, um, I, it it really hit home to me and maybe maybe i should have been uh maybe i should have been a, a parental rights spokesman before that happened to me but certainly after i experienced it directly um it 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 really um has impacted me and i i feel that for japan's sake uh for sustainability's sake for the fact that you know we're talking globally now about united nations sustainability development goals we're talking about Um, environmental, social, and corporate governance, investing, investors. These are the types of things that capital is looking for, companies that are operating under sustainable management practices. And this type of behavior, I believe, is non-sustainable. It's fine, perhaps you want to protect the environment, but don't you think you should protect your employees first? And so from my perspective as a manager, I feel I, f- I felt and I still feel that I really need to stand up for this issue and that I believe that that parents have a right to have children that young people Japanese young people any young people in the world have a right to have a career and a family and 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 that you don't have to choose one or the other and if you force somebody to choose one or the other at the end of the day you're going to damage society. You're going to damage your country. You're going to damage your people. And that's non-sustainable behavior. And so I feel very strongly that children have a right, an, inalien- an inalienable right to spend time with their parents. And young people have a right to have children and continue their career. Not just men, not just women, not just LGBTQ. Everybody, everybody has a right to have children, and continue their career. That's why I'm standing up.
1: So that was Glenn Wood explaining the kind of harassment that he went through at Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley. If you would like to support him, you can go to findmyparent.org slash Glenn Wood for more details on his case. It will be awesome if you're in Japan and you can attend his court case. It is happening on the September 10th from 2 p.m. at courtroom number 822, Tokyo High Court. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode with James Cook.
0: Well, I'm James Cook, and I live in the Twin Cities area of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I have um, four children, two sets of twins, that were abducted to the, from the United States to Japan in July of 2014. In fact, this month celebrates, or if you want to use that word, it's the seven-year anniversary of the last time that I had my children with me. Uh, my wife, now ex-wife, is from Japan, and she took our four children on a vacation, and I'm using air quotes so you can't see it, on a vacation with my permission, and um, she never brought them back. So that—that that that's what started it. Our relationship had started to break down uh, prior to that, so I have been through a lot and I've seen a lot of people and told my stories, a lot of different venues before the United States Congress three times, multiple newspapers around the world. Uh, I've been to Japan, been to a lot of places and told my story. And one, and some of the things that I get back from people. And if you're in the, if you're someone listening to this podcast or interested in this topic and you find yourself in this unfortunate situation, I will tell you some of, some of the, Truly vile and awful things people say and think. And that is, well, you should have known better. You shouldn't have let your kids go. It's your fault. What did you do? All of these things come at you when you are a parent in this situation. I don't like to use the word victim. I like to use the word targeted because, as you will discover, or if you're someone interested in the topic, you will come to learn that many of these abductions are premeditated and they're not spontaneous. There's a great deal of planning that goes into into them, and there are a great deal of outside parties that assist in abductions to have them happen and then to perpetuate them. You know, I, I will um, cover those and name names as we go on. So that's the background.
1: Thank you for the quick summary of what happened with you and your kids. James, now let's unpack it a bit. You mentioned that these abductions are premeditated and planned with the help of many individuals involved in it. Can you explain what you meant by that, especially when it comes to the abduction of your kids?
0: Well, in it, it, what I say, uh, part of the, my comments are, in a larger general sense, of folks that find themselves in this situation, parents left behind, LBPs left behind parents, so the acronym. Um, and some are specific to my case, uh, my, my specific case, I believe that my wife was afraid we're going to get divorced and she did not want to be a divorced mother. And she even said that to that effect. Um, and I believe she fled with the children because she didn't want to be a divorced mother living in the United States um all by herself and abandoned which i would never do to her and that was not anything you know that wasn't anything on the cards or plans or anything like that it was you know that was i'm not that kind of guy as she said there are different ways over the years but nonetheless she took off um in this larger pulling out a little bit further from it in her group of friends in the twins this section of the twin cities not all the twin cities but just this section small area of clustered of suburbs there probably were any point in time six to eight um, mothers Japanese mothers who were married to a western guys or other foreigners that lived in this area we have a lot of uh, good industry here medical device um, technology and so they, that brought together a, a diverse community of, of married couples and families of about eight of the Japanese moms call them that Japanese moms in this group that she sometimes hung out with four of them were involved in some kind of abduction with their children over a very short period of time one of which was was a person who very rarely frequented the group who who I had heard like almost as it was going on real time how his wife now ex-wife was actually planning how to marginalize him and his family from his family and then just take off with the children. And I didn't know who this guy was. I do now, I do now know after everything happened, he and I happened to connect and I went, Oh my God, you're this guy. I didn't even know it. I'm so sorry. He goes, well, you know, we never know. So that, that's a bit of background in that area. But um, in the case of Japan, going back even further, there are actually seminars that have been put on, been caught on videotape and um, audio, seminars from Japanese officials, government officials, that, that explain to Japanese women, ostensibly Japanese women, because they're 90 plus percent of the ones who take the children, um, but we'll just say Japanese nationals, how to abduct children and get around the quote-unquote rules of the Hague. And those sorts of things and how to keep them once you've abducted them into Japan, how to keep them there and what the government will do to make sure you don't ever have to return them. And then there are actually websites, blogs, things like that that have dedicated purposes for abducting children from foreign countries back into Japan and what protections you have and things like that. So these and so that is that's the uh, you know another level pulling out even further of how. Uh, their support and all of that. Um, and then even even a larger sense, well, I can't get much larger, I guess, than Japan, but Japan is a country, and I'll speak specifically to that because that's one I know the, the best, um, is a black hole of child abduction. They're abhorrent in how they um, do, or how they uh, protect Japanese nationals above all else, no matter what the crime, no matter what they've done, if there is a foreigner involved, the Japanese person is, ab- is absolved ultimately of any responsibility or consequences. The government of Japan refuses to abide by treaties they signed, which state comity, which means an agreement. Uh, uh, if if you have a legal, if we have a legal order in the United States, it should be enforced by recognized and enforced by Japanese courts. There are treaties to this effect. They're longstanding. Japan routinely ignores those. And create and, and must on their own create whole trials out of the air. For is you know they won't trust the legal process in the United States, even though they've signed a treaty to the effect, and we're supposed to be diplomatic friends. They will attempt to to litigate things anew, and that is further, further, and further delays. So it's the and the Japanese legal system is is systematic. or it's systemically set up to deny justice to anyone that's not a Japanese national. It's just set up that way.
1: You mentioned that a lot of Japanese women opt to abduct their kids instead of having a joint custody arrangement with their ex-husbands. I feel like that is a self-defeating behavior as they choose to stay in this complicated arrangement compared to sharing the responsibility with their ex-boss, although the marriage is over. I think that is just creating a messed up situation for them and their kids. What do you think about it?
0: I don't know that necessarily that they try to avoid divorce. Although there's a great deal of shame in that, like there's something wrong and they hide that. I mean, they're, I I've, I started my relationship with the country of Japan when I was, when I first went to work there in 1987, and so I've had an ongoing relationship. I've lived there. I've lived there and worked there twice. I was married to someone from Japan. We used to go and visit for you know weeks or a month at a time. Uh, and so there's, I've been in uh, Japan a lot. I had a business relationship with them throughout most all of this time. Also, uh, as importing uh, product wine was made, was made over there. And so I have this relationship with Japan. So, and I don't, I don't hold myself out to be an ex- <clears throat> excuse me, an expert on the country. However, I will hold myself out as being far more experienced and seasoned than these Japanophile sycophantic anime worshipping, uh, isn't it a beautiful country type of people? And I'll be very blunt, those people make me sick. Um, because they're uh they bought in Hook Line and Sinker to this PR campaign of how wonderful Japan is. And when you when you understand the Japanese culture and how Japanese people conduct themselves, they are not like us. When I say us, I mean like the big US and generally Western society, they operate by different rules. They are their rules. They are, they are, they by their rights and by their, uh, growing up and all of that, they are, they are what they are and they can be fine, but they are not how we, they do not do business. They do not. They're not human. They don't look at humanity or human rights the way we do. They don't do a lot of things like we do. Um, and, they negotiate, if you want, to even call that term differently than us. Um, as a case in point, uh, a couple of points I like to put out there that if some people understand these concepts, it will it will clarify it quickly. It's a zero sum society. Zero sum being that in all negotiations and all situations, there has to be one clear winner and one clear loser. Um, which you know, so in that case, then that follows on in, the, in their family law as there's only sole custody in Japan. There's no such thing as shared custody that's protected or even recognized under the law. So you have one winner and one loser. Um, Also in business, they do not collaborate. They are um, like, for instance, if we, we, we give concessions, like we give a little, we give something to get something. And that's how we're taught how to communicate and collaborate as human beings and get along in our society. Over there, if, when we do negotiations from the West, say, you know, you know we're, we want to cooperate. So this is what we're going to offer up to you to start out. They say, thank you. And it's from that point, they take that from you. And it's from that point, they start the negotiations anew, as though nothing has happened up to this point. And so that's where we lose the country diplomatically. That's where we lose as people here in many ways, because we're all we all understand or how we've learned to trade and build relationships is on, I give something, you give something. I hate to use the word compromise, but it's a collaboration. You know, Because in in compromise, both people kind of end up uh, unhappy. That's not ultimately where we want to go. We want to be collaborators, so we're building something better that neither one of us could envision, but we're doing it together. That's not how Japanese operate. It's one way or the other. There's very little collaboration, particularly in the resolution of disputes, like divorce. And so, um, and I'm going to digress a little bit, but another case in point is overwhelmingly, and to be very conservative, I'll say 90%, it's actually closer to 95% of the parents or parent in Japan that will, whoever takes the child first gets to keep them. And so the, the, in that, again, is that zero sum game. uh, And. So whoever take, abducts the child first, even domestically, not just talking internationally, just domestically, gets to keep the child. And they call it the continuity principle, which is a nice euphemism that the, for a very lazy judiciary uh, over there. But they, uh, if a child is taken, uh, the the courts or the, the mindset and the legal system is, well, the child's been through enough already. They've already been abducted once. You know, if we were to relocate them back with the parent they were stolen from, that would be way too disruptive for them. So it's better off for the child just to stay with the person who took them first. Which anybody that's educated, enlightened, has any concept of human psychology or human development knows how fucked up that is. Just absolutely fucked up that is. Um, but it's the la- it's the lazy it's lazy judiciary. And I'll be very vulgar here. They're very chicken shit people because they hate confrontation and they'll give up quickly on a lot of things. And so they do a lot of things to avoid confrontation. And the folks in Japan, Japanese people that understand this, um, have like particularly, I'm going to keep kind of digressing here uh, on tangents, but um, the legal system is run uh, in terms of lawyers by attorneys that are hysterical screaming maniacs or angry shouters um and and apparently the the crazier and the more you know he's <laughs> a really bad word here that shit crazy you, you are for your clients um apparently the more valid your client's position is and that's just no way to run the railroad. It's no way to have a legal system because we're and and undermining all of this also is if you look at Japanese law, children in the law are are written about in the law in the same way as a pet or a plant or a painting. It's a piece of property to award. This is not a sentient. This is not a human being. This is not any anyone who who actually has their own sort of autonomous or sovereign rights. this is just something that we award to one person or the other right and so it's archaic it's barbaric how they do it and um, so i mean i guess that's a fairly damning criticism but that that's like i guess i'm gone too far from the original question sorry
1: nobody's on that mate you mentioned that japan is a country that only believes in zero sum games or in other words, they don't believe in the concept of give and take or how people normally say, it, you know, you win some and lose some. Japan is one of the biggest economies in the world. We also know that they have the best tech and best businesses when it comes to uh, how they are doing compared to every other country in the world. But what is causing them to behave this way still, especially when it comes to parental rights, children's rights and so on?
0: Well, I... I have a minor in Japanese, which required in from university, and which required me to learn a fair amount of East Asian studies, right? Yeah. And so, I don't purport to be an expert on this, and I actually have long forgotten a lot of the really critical things I learned those many years ago. But I will give you uh, my thoughts that are uh, influenced by what I've learned and what I've experienced, and I also will qualify this again by saying I'm not a scholar. And so what I hold out, I can't claim as actual facts, quote unquote, facts for people, because really what are facts in today's world? We seem to have completely screwed that concept over anyways. Um, So anyhow, what it appears to be. Is it's a it's a collectivist system in Japan, you know, it's all for one. It's not any, you know, the individual doesn't matter. It's the collective. And from that is flown, flowed. Uh, a lot of behaviors and societal mores that we in the West, and I'll say it the United States, the West, do not uh, follow. And so they champion um, social calm or, collect- or group calm over individual. And so they sacrifice the individual for the benefit of the group, and that's inculcated in everyone as they're growing up. Um, so that there's that collectivist sort of stuff. They are, uh, like I said, they're all, they're, they look out they look out for their group before they ever look out for any individual rights. So it's a group rights versus individual rights. So it's different than what we have here. Uh, another thing is that zero-sum game goes back to, you would like to think, or it's common to think, goes back to the feudal, you know, shogun. You know, think, think of those images of, you know, there's only one winner out of a sword fight, sword fight typically. And, um, there's, you know, two you know, so that, that's, that is a real classic reason or explanation for the zero sum game. Uh, another, what they have, they were, uh, very proud country. And you know, we go back to, uh, world war two, which is the most, is basically how the, how the West and the United States really got introduced to them. Uh, because we had one, we, we had a war with them and or they had a war with us. And then we did that terrible act that um, Japan has been uh, famous for ever since, in many senses of the word. Uh, what has come out of that society and, and since World War II, so 70, some, about 70 years, is they we bombed them, and then we built them up. And then we used them as a basis, and we used their industry. We funded their industry to build up our next war effort in Korea. So a lot of their industries got brought back back healthy again at a more rapid, less organic rate, artificial rate, because we paid for it so we could fund the Korean intervention and the Korean War or whatever act we want to call that. And so we use the Japanese industry as a a, uh, remote factory and, and manufacturing site for much of our war effort in that part of the world. And they always have been since then. They've always been a basis for our strategic interests. And so we have that um, kind of mutually assured cooperation, if you will, and that figures into a lot of what's going on. Um, so being a collectivist society and not being that way, not set up typically for being successful, um, they've lagged behind far more independent. It's just in a, in a look at society. Um when there's freedom and freedom and innovation and autonomy like we have here in the United States, you get a lot more. You get freedom. I mean, you get a lot more innovation. You get a lot more more rapid advancement. And people, as we in microcosm of like IT and how that's so wild in IT that people are leapfrogging each other constantly. Sometimes it's in the same room, you know, back to back in chairs, right? Um, so, we have that kind of freedom and innovation. We do it for reasons, individual pursuits rather than the collective pursuit. But the collectivists eventually can grow and follow on. Well, Japan has been building. We funded it back to the Korean times. And then they've always been our friend ever since. Japan has benefited uh, mightily from that association. So, they haven't had to say change much or adapt much. They've just been receiving. Um, money just to be our friends and we've used that they've used that to build up their factories and their power in the world um it is japan is uh quite adept at uh surviving and that's what they've done since world war ii they survived and any really any sort of relationships negotiations they have with people it's just how do we get how do we get the best of this how do we you know Make it through, and it's not, and I say that, of course, everyone's the best, I don't see that say that meaning that they're malicious, uh, but it's they're just looking to survive and to keep going and going and going and going for the yeah, in many ways many ways, it's noble for the benefit of their society and their good, um, but some of their means to their ends are pretty awful.
1: I get what you mean, man uh but let's talk about this from a human perspective. uh, let me explain what I mean by that. I believe that every human have the capacity to be a good person. So if we take that approach, it's obvious that Japanese people are humans too. And they do want to do all the right things that we are speaking about, such as uh, giving the rights to children, joint custody, so on and so forth. What is stopping them from doing it? What is stopping them from making the transition that many countries have already made ages ago? Got
0: it. I know exactly. I I got the answer. Uh, two Two different layers on that question for you. First of all, the human aspect of what prevents it, and their society, the global uh, or the larger issue at play is that zero sum society. It's the un, um, yeah, it's it's the zero sum society. It's the inability to have or an understanding or appreciation that we cooperate. We, we actually we collaborate and cooperate to get to get to a better solution than either one we came. Either one of the ones we came to the table with if it if it were be if it were to become okay in Japan to lose or if it were and lose being a give a concession anytime you give a concession, you've lost in their eyes you're not you're not cooperating, you're losing um to get over that that is what keeps them from so much potential growth as a society and and oh more a more opportunity for their citizens is to get over that zero sum thinking. Have a collaborative say it's okay for two people to cooperate to come to a better solution, specifically in the case of family law. What, um, and in my and I'm going to digress a little bit here to give more background for the listeners and all of that. And maybe if you aren't aware, I my case is probably the most famous, and I don't say that out of ego, I say that factually, the most famous case in the history of the Hague between the United States and Japan. It's, I don't believe there's a case that's been written about more. Uh, my story has been tr- covered and reprinted in newspapers all over the world. I've been to United States Congress to testify before a subcommittee three separate times. Uh, I have been in the Japan Times multiple times. AFP, the French News Service, has taken my story and put it across the world. I've been the Washington Times, been in USA Today, all of this. And this isn't to say rah, rah, great for me, I right, wonderful, um, or oh, woe is me. This is just to give you background. I have a lot of experience in this. And um, when my case, I won the return of my children to the United States in the N-Hort Hague courts in Japan twice and was unable to enforce them, the return Of my children, because the Japanese laws are set up such to make sure you can't enforce the return. And even if you could enforce them, the Japanese law doesn't allow you to actually do enforcement, enforce enforcement. So as the funny turn of phrase is, Japan can't enforce its own enforcement laws. And it's written, it's purposely written that way. So they set it up to fail to begin with. Um, And that one microcosm of that agreement is how Japan are sneaky little bastards um they're just evil they're just shitty dealers they're fucking crooks um pardon my language but that was awful 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 deal um and uh so anyhow but in the mechanisms inside japan um one oh my god the trajectory of my case so i won the return did the appeal um during this time, I have, as many parents, if you're in this situation, you now it takes a lot of financial resources. There's not, no shortage of, of legal people who are, who are willing to take lots of your money. In this case, I, I didn't have those types of people, but I did have other kind of debts. I ended up having to, I lost my house. I lost everything in my life in the pursuit of this. Um, I had to have a job that was one I could tim- simply almost a temporary job because I could throw it away because I had to leave. To go to japan at a drop of a hat whenever there's a case and i'd have to be there for a while so i couldn't have any meaningful gainful employment while i was going through this process trying to win the return of my children and then once i won the return of my children to actually enforce the court orders to bring them back all of that took time eventually um during that my financial situation uh Became a parent to my now ex wife, her attorney, and they claimed they didn't have any means of supporting my children or for them a place for them to stay, which is total bullshit. I always had money. I always had a place for them to stay. It's just they no longer had the house that they lived in, that, you know, our over half a million dollar house that I no longer had that. But I always had a place for them to live and I always had income. Uh, But they made that up and they speculated that I didn't have money. I never supplied any financial any financial statements in my court, my court documents to state that i didn't, did or did not have any money. However, the japanese uh, uh, what they call it the higher court, which would be the appellate court, and kind of how we look at it here because it's between the district court and the supreme courts, um, looked at it, and they, they they speculated because they didn't supply any financials, they probably didn't have any money. And based on their speculation, they concluded I didn't have any money, and they used that as a rationale that my kids would be coming back to an untenable or a grave, situ- a grave risk, which is language in the Hague. Grave risk in the rest of the world, in the rest of the world's court, uh, is, is supposed to be narrowly, very narrowly interpreted as grave risk. There have been children who have been returned to Israel, uh, which is actively being bombed, because the grave risk wasn't specifically to them, but a general society grave risk. Okay. That's how narrowly you interpret grave risk. The fact that the children would no longer be going to private school is not a grave risk to their, to their life. Okay. It's a it's a slight different, slightly different lifestyle, but it's not a risk to themselves. But the Japanese attorney courts over there said, well, that's a grave risk. And they revoked the return orders of my children. And then I took that to the Japanese Supreme Court and it took the Supreme Court seven, you know, seven months or when we well, talk about February, uh, ten months to come to a decision. And they ultimately decided that, yeah, the High Court in Japan, the Osaka High Court, yeah, they were right. Yeah, he probably doesn't have any money and so all that. So I I filed an I filed uh, an impeachment. I I put forth an impeachment to the Japanese diet to impeach all five of the Japanese Supreme members or judges of the Japanese Supreme Court. Okay. So all of that's background on my case. You can understand that. And so I've gone to very, very far lengths of this. Um, Also, the next bit, I bring that up because in my uh, petition for impeachment, I laid out the sort of trifecta uh, laid bare in this document, 50-some page document. Plus, there's, evi- there's evidence and addendums to it and all that um, about this sort of cabal in how the Japanese court system is uh, corrupt. You have judges who are, some of, some of which have actually never gone to law school. You have something called ShelterNet. And that shelter net is a network of DV shelters set up around the country that are publicly funded to help women. And those are corrupt as hell. And then you have the uh, Lawyers Association, family law in particular, overwhelmingly, or should say, the, an overwhelming number of the Japanese family law attorneys all belong to the Japanese Communist Party. In fact, the Japanese Communist Party has on their publications stating that they basically have or they're, you know, all their, all the attorneys, family law attorneys in Japan are in their pocket. So you have a political party that is part of the government that is, you know, basically joined at the hip with the family law terms. Okay. Then also you have the shelter net. And so as if anybody is any at all, has any familiarity with government funded, um, facilities run by a private industry, you can know that they're ripe for corruption. So let's say you have, uh, uh, and we'll say We'll assume this is legitimate. Okay, these are not false claims, but false claims are everywhere. This is a legitimate DV, situ- DV situation, domestic violence. Uh, a young, uh, a mom and her kids flee a house of an abuser, and they come to these shelters set up by the government, actually owned by other pe- by corporations that, that own these and set these, run these things up. And they, let's say, they'll they'll come there and they'll get food and clothing and they get like a monthly stipend of about thousand dollars a month to live on as they live in that shelter trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life the government may pay that shelter operator let's say twenty five hundred dollars a month to house that person you see there's a little bit of a disparity there right well these are these shelters that are run there are usually at an arm's length transaction or loosely uh, tied to or some were not so loosely tied to uh, politicians that set these up, and so there's massive amount documented kickbacks and conflicts of interest in all of this. You know, so you're warding largesse. It's, you know, it's, um, it would it would totally fail the emoluments clause uh, that we have here in the in the air constitution, and that's in just you know un- just corruption, right? Then also the um, the politicians are they're also being paid off by this group as are the judges. and they're all tied in together. And so, um, now let's step out of my other the other narrative of the DV and there are multiple, multiple false DV claims. If a mom walks into a court and says, my, my husband abused me, I'm a victim of DV. Basically she has won the case. It's over. It's all done. Because the judiciary, in their, somewhat in their misogynistic, old old traditional way of trying to protect these frail women, um, don't see it any other way. Oh, we must protect women. All the while, the ir- irony in a larger sense, Japan victimizes young women and sexualizes them from a very young age. So it's creepy how they do this. Um, but nonetheless, so they, they try to protect the women, you know, or so they say, and that ends up becoming a, um, a problem for, I mean, for, for the false claims, but also if we drill down even deeper into the legal aspects of it, coming from the point of view of the United States, um, we have, there's only two forms of an attorney that cannot collect a percentage and that's a patent attorney and a divorce attorney. All they can ever do is charge you for your time. Okay, they don't get contingencies. They don't get a percentage of whatever, right? Japanese attorneys are, they pay them for their time. They get a percentage of whatever you win, and they'll get a residual percentage of all maintenance payments or alimony or child support you get. So this is just rife with just money flying everywhere, and it's horribly, horribly corrupt. So divorces don't even have the possibility of cooperation or collaboration. Because so the incentive for the attorney to get rich off of it is so great, and so there is no disincentive to prolonging a divorce. There's only an incentive to prolonging the divorce process, and then fighting and fighting and fighting to total destruction, which we might think is bad in the U.S. with just paying by the hour. But eventually, one of the parties gets in, right? Over there, it's even. They're not only do they get you during the argument; they're getting you after you get get your money. And yeah, it's just it's it's. We call bloodthirsty. So those are those are some of the larger cultural reasons why we can't they don't come around. And then the systemic ones of why it just it's it's very difficult to break through into change from the sole custody to joint custody, uh, to any sort of major change because the corruption is so deep and the money is so thick. um, that we're gonna it's it's a very difficult uphill battle.
1: Thank you for that awesome answer, James. When you say that you are the person who has been mentioned with the Hague Convention the most, I know that you're not even bragging. It is the truth. I think the Hague Convention was created with good intentions to help people like you, but with bad enforcement. So do you think we need a reformation when it comes to uh, the Hague? Uh, In
0: the larger sense, I'm not an expert in, in anything in the Hague, okay? I just have experience in it and I've learned some things along the way. Uh, I can't speak to The Hague in other countries other than what I hear from other left-behind parents who, you know, I I unfortunately know because, I mean, I know it's fortunate to know them. It's unfortunate how we know each other uh, because of this. Uh, In the specific case of The Hague with really horrible countries, Brazil, France, and Japan usually top the list of the ones that are the the most egregious violators of The Hague. and. France, i can't explain why because i don't have any first-hand information on that brazil i can understand because brazil is rife with corruption and and from my our point of view i guess in the states is we would kind of expect brazil maybe not to cooperate um and just like middle eastern countries when people have their children abducted the middle east, um and they can't get their kids back we kind of collectively i mean we're all sad we empathize but we're like yeah it's the middle east you know, they're. You know, they throw rocks at each other, right? So we don't anticipate a sophisticated court system. Um, but when it comes to the specific of Japan, they're, they're our ally. They're supposed to be our friend. They, 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 by all of, they present themselves as an advanced country. And so all of our expectations of their behavior indicate to us that they're going to cooperate. The fact of the matter is they do not. And um, so that is shocking, surprising. Our State Department has the powers under the Goldman Act, or IPICA, whichever way you want to talk about it, to, they have very, very, very strong tools. And the the sad, unfortunate reality is that this international child abduction problem that Japan does, this black hole, the United States State Department or the government of the United States through the State Department could fix this very quickly by basically using the far, escalating up the list to the, the stronger tools and, tell, by, and signaling to Japan, cut this shit out, you're done. Return kids, stop fucking taking kids, right? But they won't. What they keep doing is sending lower level letters like, gosh darn it, you better stop doing this. Boy, we're pretty upset. And you know Japan goes oh yeah, that's too bad. And they just fucking wipe their ass with that, that last letter, right? They must have rooms wallpapered with all these demarches. We could do things like, okay, we're taking this serious. Um, speaking as though I were the State Department, um, we're, take, we're taking this serious now in, United, as the United States saying to Japan, um, until you start returning children and guaranteeing access, we are going to now rescind and no longer issue student visas for Japanese nationals. We are going to severely curtail visitor visas from Japan to the United States. Japanese love the United States. They love to come here. Uh, And I don't say that because just like, oh, wow, America's great. And we are in ways. We've shown that over the years. Uh, But they do. It's the fact. They love coming coming to the United States and then leaving. You know, Disneyland, Hawaii, um, all those places. They just love to come and visit. Okay. So this is a significant loss. For their country, if they were to come here. It's not tourist loss, it's not a big deal for us, you know, large scheme of things, right? Um, so we could start rescinding that and curtailing that heavily. That would have, that would be a fairly that would be a fairly tough uh consequence for Japan, they would have to deal with. Another thing that I proposed, which I don't believe is actually legal, but I'll throw it out there as a concept. And I did this in one of my testimonies, is that since Japan has proven themselves to be, well, I mean, I got to back up even further in the in the narrative of how it is. Speaking of Japanese as a monolith, and I know there's exceptions to these, everything I say is generalizations, It's always exceptions, that's the inherent part of generalization. Okay, but the larger part of it holds true. Um, Japanese will not do anything unless they have no choice or they are forced. If you give them, if, If they have an option of inaction and nothing happens to them, they always choose inaction. And the United States, has always given them that option of inaction with no consequence, and so and they work. And Japanese work really well because from a young age, they're always told what to do, and their lives are not their lives; the lives of what someone else laid out for them. You know, kids growing up, kids grow up to be something not necessarily they want, but what their parents want or society wants them to do, or someone says you should do this, so they do it. Uh, in a larger sense, right that's why they people refer to the populace as a bunch of robots uh because it's they're not living their lives they're living they're they're living their lives heavily influenced by the opinions and the thoughts and the goading and the cajoling of others um, and so that's many why that's why many of them like to come to the United States because it's free here, and often they don't even know what to do when they get here with all this freedom yeah um, it, it's, it's like I said this is borderline illegal. Uh, but what it is, is that it, I had to give that background that they only do the thing forced and they have to be forced and given no other choice, which, which we in the West as an evolved society. You just don't do heavy handed things. We're all about cooperation and you need, you need people to be part of the process. And we have all these nice words, particularly enlightened as we are in the workplace now, you know, bring people along, you know, right? The Japanese don't work that way. They, are, they work very well being told what to do, extrinsically motivated, carrot and stick, okay? You do this, you get this, don't do this, this happens to you. Um, so what I propose from the U.S. government, take a position of, to Japan, saying, okay, when there's a return order for children to be returned to the United States, and there have been return orders. This is not to say that, you, I, you know, I don't want anybody to misunderstand that say Japan never orders the return of children. Oh, they return, they they have ordered the return of children, it's just you can't get them back because they've they've so uh, wrapped up the enforcement and screwed it up so badly that you can't, even if you follow the process, which is what I did, who does not return result in the return of your children. It's designed to fail. Okay. Um, but if the United States State Department says there's a return order for a children, for a child, the parent has 30 days from the from the issue of that order to return the child to the United States, independent of any sort of appeal filed you have 30 days to return that child back to their parents because they've been away from the parent long enough. 30 days pass. Then the United States says after 30 days, if that child's not returned, it now becomes a responsibility of the Japanese government. They have 30 more days to return that child to the parent of the United States. So we have 60 days. In the event, on the 61st day, the United States reserves the right to use all available forces and law enforcement, i.e. military, in the area to enforce the return, independent and in total disregard for social mores and any local laws. Basically, we're going to go and treat these children like kidnapped U.S. people held hostage. And we're going to extricate them from whoever they are. and We're going to use all available means to hunt down, and I'm mean, using very strong language here, but run are uh, to locate the abductors and to remove the children by any means available to us and return them back to a U.S. citizen, the U.S. parent. I, I still challenge anybody who isn't just like trying to, that isn't in, in it or in the tank for the Japanese or anybody like that, but just anybody explain to me how a U.S. citizen, and these children are U.S. citizens, are U.S. citizens that have been ordered to be returned are still being held. In Japan, and by by definition, they're minors, so they don't have will, so you can't put it against their will. It's just a fact, it's a legal fact that they're being held illegally in a foreign country. Why we don't view that as a hostage or a kidnap? I don't, no one is yet to tell me how that's in fact not a kidnapping in all senses of the word, and why we don't treat it as such. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a parent, it's still. That parent, you know, I I have sole, I have sole permanent custody of my children. Okay, and they write stories about my of my case, and they say it's a custody battle. Bullshit, it's not. I've even told people who've interviewed me, and in, in the pre and the on background, and they're like, well, "Okay, we talk about this." And I said, "Good. You know, do you have anything you would like to, you know, this is the interviewer asking me? Is there anything you'd like me to to be careful about?" And I said, "Yes. Do not ever use the word as a custody dispute. This is not a custody dispute. I have custody of my children. I always have." is a treaty and law enforcement dispute. Don't use word custody dispute. Because when people hear the word custody dispute, they think about, oh, two warring parents that are divorcing. And they're like, well, you know, pox on both houses. No, I've won that to the degree that winning means anything in this. Okay. I have that legal standing. I have sold permanent custody of my children. It is a law enforcement and a treaty enforcement problem. This belongs, this matter isn't between me and my ex wife anymore. This is between the United States and Japan. And I would really like to see the United States State Department step up and, and take it as such instead of so saying, well, this is between two people. No, it isn't. Fuck you guys. All right. This is between the two countries. I didn't sign the goddamn Hague personally. My wife didn't sign the Hague. You people did. You two parties did. You take care of it and you get me my kids back. That is your job. That is what you're supposed to do. You know, instead of sending me forms and saying, "Oh God, we really feel bad," no bullshit, you feel bad, you know. Anyways, a little emotional, but it's just, and that's, what, and that sentiment is what a lot of parents in my situation feel. They really believe the State Department's there to help them, and the State Department is only there to send you to. Honestly, at the end of the day, all they do is give you forms, walk you through the process, and keep score if it worked. That's it. They don't do anything else. We had a chance years ago. The previous, 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 in administration, with a previous, 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 I think, Secretary of State, who was very unsuccessful in a much larger attainment, and there are whispers of how that particular individual literally sold our children away. Are being in, with respect to Japan, sold the future prosecution or the pursuit of getting these children back in exchange for things that I don't think we'd all be very happy about if they came public.
1: I totally understand what you're saying, James. Everyone knows that U.S. has the biggest military power, and in many cases, they have been bullying countries to do what they want. However, when it comes to Japan, they have been somewhat laxed about it. Can we conclude that this is because U.S. is more interested in the money that they can make by being buddy-buddy with Japan, compared to saving the kids, like U.S. kids, from Japan?
0: Uh, I'm not in those rooms. I don't know that. And I don't want to conclude that I have been told that we, yeah, these are complicated matters. We've got, you know,
1: you know, and other
0: people that think even bigger say, well, we've got, you know, we have those bases over there. We have economic, we have military interests, both of us between each other. And it's like, that's fine. I don't give a shit about that. These are real simple. And at the end of the day, I mean, I'll flip the argument over. Okay. Some people will say, like, well, we're really talking about a couple hundred kids. I and mean, my point is exactly. There's only a couple hundred kids. What the fuck's the problem? Resolve these couple hundred kid cases. What, why, this, why do we have to raise this to the level of, of being on par and, and jeopardizing You know, um, you know tra- or commerce or military bases or things like that? Don't do that. Let's not put it up there. Let's just resolve it as though these are kidnapped children, kidnapped human beings. From kidnapped citizens from the US, United States and prosecute it the same way as if, you know, we had hostages held in Iran when I was a kid. I remember watching it in the nightly news every night, got updates on it. Okay. There's 400, and, or I don't this. how many, that's only days old. They had, I can't remember how many they were. Okay. And, but there are over 400 children, ja, over 400 US children that have been abducted to Japan that. That parents over here have been trying to get returned that Japan refuses to cooperate with. Meanwhile, the U.S. government is bending over backwards all the time trying to re- trying to return um, Japanese people that were abducted by North Korea decades ago. And and the Jap- Japan always comes back. Well, if, well, you have to help us with the North Korean problem and get our people back. You know, it's like bullshit. Fuck you guys. Return our kids. You know. Return our kids and show us that you give a shit, and that goes all the way back to that zero-sum game. Japanese don't co- don't collaborate, don't cooperate. If you want to collaborate, you want this to go better, Japan. How we do it is we give something. Why don't you give us something by returning children, by executing and prosecuting the return of children instead of having this sort of black, this sort of nothingness the abyss that once you get a return order then here's all these convoluted processes, And in fact, I'll tell you how their enforcement rules are. Okay. I'll just give you a window into that. So how getting a return order from a court, which is not easy, but once you get it is no great is now guaranteed anything. Right. So I won the return of my children. Now here's the enforcement rules of Japan. First, the court, you have, you have to have hearings for every one of these things. Okay. And hearings don't happen immediately. They take, four to six weeks to at each hearing, and then you have to wait for a decision, okay? So it tolls. you know, there's it just takes time. First one is you have a hearing to advise the court of the person that, or to tell the court, to tell the person that just lost, you have to return the children. So, and it's just a letter. And then the, then the court says, oh, gosh, that person didn't reply. It doesn't seem like they're interested. Then you go to something called indirect enforcement, and that's the financial penalty, okay? Then you have a hearing on that and then they lose, and then they get to appeal, and that takes more time. And indirect enforcement, basically money that they're going to um, uh, assign people. And in my case, my wife doesn't have a job. She's got very wealthy parents, and she just gets to live there for free and can get, can always and inconsist- consistently plead poverty because she's a kept woman over there. Um, and they remain indefinitely, you know, quote-unquote, poor, right? Have no assets because Her assets are her parents' assets, her family's assets, and so she so she has all those fees going falling against her. And then then you get something called direct enforcement. Now, direct enforcement is best in practice is best summarized or conceptualized as ambush. You have to make sure everybody's in the house, the parent, the 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 taking parent, and the children. You get to walk up to the door, knock at the door and get to ask to come in if they don't invite you in. The law allows them to break down the door if they know the children are on the other side. Well, okay, they don't break down that you walk in. And then at that point, then you have to ask the children if they want to come with you. And and if the children say no, the enforcement's over, you lose. It's all, bye. That's, That's the extent of the enforcement. And so how it went down in my case is we got up very early one morning, sat in the pre sun, you know, as the sun was coming up. I waited in a van on a rainy day down the block from the house, and they had how many people do we have there? Almost twenty people. It was literally like a SWAT ambush of this house. And as soon as the police went and knocked down the door, all chaos broke loose in the house. Parent, and my ex-wife is really good at screaming and being hysterical, but her mom is is a is fantastic at it. So the whole house is an upheaval. Oh my God, like that stuff. So the kids are freaked out beyond all belief, right? And after all of that, then that's when the opportunity would come for me to go in. I was never allowed in. I sat in a van out in front of the house for three hours in the rain. At the end of the enforcement thing was told, yeah, we don't think they're going to say yes. So we just gave up. So I never even got to see my children after flying to Japan and going through all this shit. I had to sit in the van and wait because the, the enforcement officers from the court thought it was too crazy and they wouldn't say yes and they wouldn't allow me to come in. And, and, and that's how that's how screwed up the enforcement rules are in Japan. So I couldn't even see my kids. And that that's and then they called it failed direct enforcement. So I couldn't get my kids. That's it. You run, you've run it all out. You're all done. So I won the order of my return. But their enforcement process is set up to fail. Because I'm honest to God, I mean, I don't know what rational human being hearing this is going to think that when you walk up and you ask your kids after all of they've just been through in the early morning, they're still in their jammies, right? Jammies get ready for school and their parents are screaming. Everyone's in the house is screaming. And then suddenly the father walks in and says, hey, do you want to come with me? What do you think they're going to say? And And in the end of the day, I didn't even get to go in to ask that question. I never even got to see my kids.
1: Yeah, James, I don't think we talked about this, but can you give a little bit more context to the listeners? How old were your children when all this happened?
0: 13-year-olds and uh, I have two sets of twins. So 13-year-old boys and then a right? And an 8-year-old boy and girl. Somewhere around there. Yeah,
1: so they are relatively young. So if a group of people dressed up as the police come at them and say that, "Hey, you want to follow your dad?" Of course, they're going to say no because yeah. you are scared. You think?
0: Yeah, I mean that that seems intuitively obvious. But see, that was written that the uh, the laws or implement, implementation, the rules of implementation, or whatever the term is for, were written that way with the mind so that that they would fail. I have a fairly good, fairly good. uh Advice or information that they are written purposely to fail, because who? Because again, what rational person will look at this and think that that has any shot at success? Other than these Japanese people that live in fantasy, like, oh, if the kids really want to see the parents, they're going to come with them. If they really miss their parents, they're going to really want to come. No, they're scared to death. And they're also what they fail to realize is that this taking parent has had this opportunity. Now has been years. To poison the minds of these of these children against the other parents, and then at the same time, these children, being minors, are wholly dependent. All of their trust and their belief is in this parent that took them, and then the and, and the legend of this parent has been built up in their mind, save them from this awful other parent, right? So even if the kids and kids, children fundamentally want both their parents in their lives, even. Children have been, my kids were not even abused or, abused or anything like that, but even children that have been abused still want their other parent. As, as weird as that sounds, they still want to see that other parent. That connection is so strong in their soul, but they, but they won't because they're looking at the chaos around them and what all this, all this is happening and children are generally self-centered. They just are. And they think there were a lot of, they, they, they have an over. They have an overextended belief of their influence and effect on the world. You know, a lot of kids think that a lot of things around them that happen are their fault. And it's not. They just happen, right? But they think they had something they did, could have done or whatever. that could have affected the outcome. It's not true. And so they look at all this. The kids are all drill it down. And in this moment, they're like, well, all this is happening because of me. You know, what do they do? They're not going to say yes. They're going to say no. You know, or, or, or they're going to run away. I mean, this is this is all calculated to fail from the beginning, and if it wasn't, which is hardly hard to believe, um, it it's a sign of exactly how backwards and archaic the thought and development of Japan is with respect to human psychology and child psychology, which is non-existent. You know, I mean, I've and and, and sound egotistical, but. Pretty damn sure it's factual. I've met with the child psychologists over there that were part of my case. I probably know more about this subject matter than they do, just by talking to them and asking them questions. Cause I would I would say, what about this? And they gave me these. I mean, they were just like basic fundamental psychological principles of human development, child development. And they looked at me like, what? Huh? I've never heard that before. You know, there are a few people in Japan that are really good. They're on the ball. They know what they're doing. Um, they're both professors up in the Tokyo area. Um, one of them is, uh, Odegiri sensei. She's fantastic. Uh, has, and her, and she's got a great heart and she's all about getting children together. She's, I believe she's an advocate of joint custody or at least both parents and the children's lives. And, you know, that's, you know, so I give props to her. She's been part in full disclosure. She's been someone that's been on my case and has written it on my behalf to the court about my kids. Um, and there's another one, um, over there too. I believe his name, last name is, oh shoot, I forgot, Aoki, I think. I think it might be his last name, it might be Aoki.
1: All right. Do you think that the Japanese moms who decide to abduct their kids understand that their own children are going to have a tough time growing up? Nope.
0: They don't care. It doesn't matter to them because many of the, many of the children have been, have been effectively abandoned by their father or their fathers have been marginalized by society in Japan. And so the presence dads aren't necessary in Japan and many, 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 many mindsets and many, many, many households. Dad's just an annoyance. You know, Otosan is just there on the weekends maybe because he has to be at work five days a week and then maybe he goes golfing on the weekend and spends time with us. So he's maybe Sunday. Maybe that's the only time they ever really get any time with their fathers on Sunday. Well, so he's been marginalized just by the way society is to the expectation he's the breadwinner and the mother stays home with the kids and she has the sole responsibility of the children. And so fathers have been marginalized in the society to begin with. And so the moms being that are thinking, well, they're not that important anyways. You know, so what I'm, I'm with the kids, six, you know, six of the seven days a week. So I'm picking up one more day. I, that's not a big deal. Right. And so fathers have been marginalized. They're not seen as of, of having any sort of value in the developmental importance of children's lives. In many, so the, the mothers grow up with absent fathers, and um, society sees that too. So I don't think they, I don't think they think twice. And then also, Japanese women tend to are highly enmeshed with their children. They're meaning their identities for themselves are not divorced from their children. They're one and the same. If a child succeeds, they feel like they, the parent, the mother feels like she succeeded, okay? If the children fail, the converse is if the children fail, the mother feels a tremendous amount of shame about their uh, child, about their personal failure, that their child had gotten trouble or something. And the children also, it, it, dynamic also works the other way too, and that is the child has these expectations to never disappoint their parent. And that all works in a very sick, mentally sick stew of dysfunction. And that's why I create all these horrible, horrible, you know, situations. But no, the short answer is that I don't think they even give a shit, um, or even think twice about what these children are missing. Because I don't think they're—I don't think they think enough of their of the father or husband to uh, even think he's worth anything in their lives, and they can handle it themselves.
1: Yeah, this brings me to my next question: If your kids ever try to reach out to you, especially since you are talking about this everywhere about what happened with you and all that. And at the same time, just Googling your name brings all this up. Well, it,
0: in my particular, I have you know, each case is different. I have specific details in my case that um, don't bode well for me. Um, my kids, one of, one of my oldest sons, uh, took the role of the other parent the, um, and, and, a, and personal, personal spokesperson for the group. And so he was the one, and over the time, the little communication I've had with him has been him advocating uh, for his mom, and his mom's case. And recently, oh gosh, back in October, he finally, finally emailed me for help with financial aid documents so he and his twin brother could apply to go to college in the United States. That's the only time I'd heard from him for years, okay? And he wanted my help, and so I helped him. Because I want my, my my sons have worked very hard. They're brilliant human beings, and I don't want to stand in the way of their personal success, right? And plus, like, so I want them to give me an opportunity to demonstrate that I, I I love them, and this is what I would do for them. And in during that process, and he would not communicate with me anything beyond the school. There's no like, hey, how's life going? Chit chat. It was just fill out this for me, send this in by this date. I need it done. Thank you. And um. That was it. And then he communicated to me near the end of that. He says, even though you've helped me, I have no interest in talking to you ever. And so I thought, wow. Um, So, yes, they've been heavily brainwashed. But another part of my case and and then he is he has been the spokesperson and I'm sure he's been providing enough brainwashing for um, my youngest children who don't know me very well. because They left when they were six. And they kind of remember, remember me, and I'm sure anything positive that's ever happened or ever, they have positive memories have been, has been pushed and crushed out of them by everybody around them because so they've always lived with my in-laws, my ex-in-laws. So, um, so my ex-wife and my kids all live in my in-laws' house in Japan, uh, very tight quarters. Um, and so they've been, they've been bathed in this sort of stuff. But on top of that, my father, my father, biological, my dad, my father, has been paying my ex-wife money to have access to my children. And I was, and knowing him, it's exclusive access, meaning I will pay you this money so I can have access to the children and that my son cannot. And she, and in our history of our relationship when we lived here, because we have, we lived, you know, I know her before she left, we'd been together for 24 years and had four children together. Okay. So I, we had this history. He never liked her, and she never really liked him. And that was some. It was it was difficult. It was difficult to be in the middle of that. You I'm not saying poor me. I'm just saying the fact it was a difficult situation. And then he and I worked together for about 20 years. And then he decided unilaterally that he suddenly didn't want me in the company. And he used he he, instead of being a nice dude about it, he was a complete asshole and tried to get, and created a hostile work environment. It's called constructive discharge in legal terms, but basically tried to create an environment that I would quit from. And then he was shocked that when I left, that we, as a family, distanced ourselves and didn't want anything to do with him. And so he, like, his brain couldn't conceptualize that that would happen. Um, and so that the betrayal, you know, betraying his son and his business partner wouldn't also result in removal from him, our family removal from his life. You know, but it was, apparently it was uh, lost on him. And but she, over the years would only willingly go to any any sort of family or any see him and his girlfriend because she's she's also a complicit in this too uh if if in some way there was some financial or material gain for her or the kid and so he has he and so he was really he's got money too and so he'd buy the boys uh a lot of toys and he'd do a lot of things um and he and and so anything anytime she was willing to go she had, it had to be communicated to her that there was some sort of gain. Like, yeah, if you want to, you know, we'll, he's going to send it, he's going to bring us to Hawaii. Oh, good. We'll go to Hawaii then. We're going to go to Florida. Okay. We'll go to, we'll see. him, we'll go to Florida. That's how it was. So she was always willing to sell access to her children for money or for gain. So it does not surprise me that this person that she professed to not really like or trust suddenly is someone that she's an ally with because there's money involved. And he, has not really developed good personal relationships with anybody because he doesn't trust human, other human beings. Um, but he does trust you. He does trust you if he can pay you. And so, um, to the degree that he has a financial hook in you, he knows he has. And so they actually have worked out a very nice relationship because it doesn't, they don't have to trust each other. The check just has to clear. And that's what it's been doing. So in my case, my kids, and then, um, I was while I was working with my father, he was getting divorced, he and my mother were getting divorced, and I was subjected to the the vile crap he would spew about my mother to me at work and what he would say about other members of my family. And so I don't I, I don't need a great deal of imagination. I just need a good memory to know what was being said about me to my children. So I don't know that they I don't know that they would willingly uh, contact me, even though it's all in the media and um and they know my email address they sent them emails they just don't reply and so it's uh um, you know and and to step away from my specific case, one of the things that many uh left behind parents hear when when they're in and the, they tell other people of the situation in their life my kids have been taking all that stuff, one of the things that many people offer and innocently innocently offers, like, oh, well, one day they're going to try to contact you. They don't. In many cases, they don't. And that's really weak, weak advice. And if there are people that are uh, friends of this or interested in this topic that aren't in it themselves, I want you to stop telling people that. Please, please stop doing that. Because very, very few kids actually reach out, abduct, particularly kids from Japan, reach out and try to find their lost parent. They've often been told their parent is dead. Almost all of them have been told their parent doesn't care about them, doesn't even think about them, probably is remarried, has other kids, and are forgotten, which are all lies, all lies, okay? But that is, that's often what they're told, being brainwashed. And um, so, and I and I can understand the people that say these words, what's coming from, because what they, when they hear that, if, particularly if they're a parent. They have children of their own. And when they hear the information that you've had your children stolen from you and you have no contact from them, that flash in their brain and what they feel in their gut where they want to throw up, they need quickly, the mind wants to heal that. And so the mind says, okay, well, what can I, what can I do to, to mitigate this pain or dismiss it? What's a thought? Um, um, yeah, one day they're going to come in contact. You. Okay, I feel better thinking about that. That's what I'll tell them. And so, but what they fail to understand If you are somebody listening to this who has someone in their life who is going through this horror, okay, do not tell them, uh, oh, one day they'll come and find you and think that that's going to help. Because, in fact, in actuality, that is a very small likelihood. Sit with them and sit in their pain. Because what you've experienced for just the few moments it took you to come up with the, oh, they'll contact you, is what we live in 24-7 and what we breathe with every breath of our life. Find something else. Find something else. And if you can't find something that calms you, dig deeper and figure out how you can help them hold it together and stay calm.
1: James, from your own opinion, based on everything that we spoke about today, what can the listeners do to help the situation in Japan?
0: Uh, Parents, yeah.
1: If the U.S. citizens...
0: If they're part of the U.S., um, just raise this issue, which sounds really, it's kind of weak sauce what I can say here, but I'll say it. Raise this issue. Talk to your congressmen, your congress, your representatives. Get this to the State Department. I, absolute fact, the State Department has the tools and the powers to end or significantly curtail these abductions. They really do. And they will say that they don't. They're full of shit. That's bullshit. They do. They have very, very strong tools. And in, con- in the concrete case of Japan, they can end this like today, stop this today, and they won't. And they have the tools to do it. And w- and, and they have far more grave, far more awful, con- pernicious consequences than simply just shutting off visas. They've got, they, they can shut down offices, embassies, close consulates you know all of that they can do that they can pull back diplomats i mean what if what if the united states state department decided to get real about this and either not just threaten but actually just said you know something we're closing the tokyo embassy you know until you can until you can respect the human beings our children our us children in your country we are publicly like in international stage we're closing our embassy and calling our people back until you can agree to abide by the treaties that you signed in the concrete example of child, redu- child returns. That is one of the higher level consequences. But if they did that, that would be such a massive international point of shame in calling Japan on the carpet, it would have to precipitate some kind of change. But because we as the State Department or as a country are unwilling to even throw that out there or even do it, Japan's like, yeah, you know, they threaten us all the time, but it's like a barking dog. We'll just close the door, close the window, and then we don't hear it as bad, right? No, you got to let the dog off the leash and go do it. And I had really, honestly, it held out a lot of hope, and I'm going to get political here. I'd held out a lot of hope under the uh, Trump administration that this would happen. This would change. I have, uh, and also another political too. If you are someone that cares about this and you step in the voting booth and you are indifferent about who you're going to vote for, for your congressman, vote Republican. And I say that because I was invited to testify and all my similar left behind parents were invited to testify every year when the Republicans control the House because there's, there is Chairman Chris Smith from New Jersey who's taken this issue on as a personal issue and he holds hearings. And every year we talk about, every year there's hearings about this, sometimes a couple times a year, and he pushes us. He's a champion. He's a saint. He's a great human being for doing this. But when the Democrats control the House, they want to do investigations, and they shut this down, and they never talk about this issue. Like, our kids don't matter. Okay? So if you're indifferent who you're voting for, and you're like, well, I just need a reason, vote for Republican congressmen so that we can get back to control the House, so you can put Chairman Smith ahead of the committee. So we can have hearings about this and bring this thing to light because under the Democrats, this thing is swept under the rug. Um, And also generally, I don't know of any Democrat senator who's ever sponsored or brought a child back. I know that Mitch McConnell has been involved probably in more returns of children from foreign countries than any other senator. And I'm open to anybody correcting me on this fact and sending me information because I'd love to be wrong on it. But everything I've ever read and I know about Mitch McConnell and a few other Republican senators are the ones that bring kids back. Uh, Rubio is one. Um, Others have brought kids back and have been instrumental in being part of rallying the forces or the powers in our U.S. government to bring children back. Okay, that's what you can do as a voter. And if you're in those constituencies. But the other thing, too, is just to put pressure on um, the State Department. And your govern, in our government, to bring the kids back and to bring this issue to light, whenever you can, if you really care, or you even know, if you, if, if you're not a parent, but you're <clears throat> a friend of a parent, a relative of a parent that's in this situation, be relentless on this and keep pushing, because I will tell you, there, there are U.S. laws, or we under the Goldman Act, the U.S. State Department, I keep coming back to this, has the power to affect change on this and they can do it very quickly they just don't and our current state department we're really really struggling because they're appeasers they just like under obama and now they're going to go around and apologize for the strength that the united states has and the power we, we have and the regard that we have and make us seem like we're bad this is the wrong kind of message we need to go with strength we need to say, yes, we are America. We earned our, we earned our standing in the world, and we're going to use some of it, and we're going to use it, in this case, to bring back children, because we are, in the large part, champions and forces for good, and this is good. This protects human rights. This respects human rights. If we don't fight for our children, our children's inalienable, sovereign right to exist beyond those of the rights of the parents. OK, if we don't fight for that, we're not, we're not respecting human rights, basic human rights. If we look the other way, if we say to Japan, you know, yeah, you just run your government however you want. Oh, those are your laws. Yeah, if you want to crap upon our citizens' rights, if you want to crap upon our children, we're going to turn the other cheek. We're just going to look the other way because, well, all that. No, these are our citizens. This is how we show that we care about our citizens and our children and how we universally respect human rights. Not just when you're in the United States, anywhere in the world, our citizens are, we have to stand up for them. And these kids, these are some of our most vulnerable, impressionable citizens. By no, literally, by no, not of their own will or choice, they're there and they're held captive and they're under the power and they're wholly dependent on someone that took them, that does not, in many, many cases, legally, if not ethically and morally, has no standing to hold them.
1: That was uh, powerful, James. Now, what advice that you have for people who are going through a similar situation as yours, as somebody who have done everything? What advice that uh, you have for them?
0: You know, it's difficult for me to give good advice, ones that be effective, particularly in the case of Japan, because I've tried virtually everything. I haven't gotten a hunger strike, so you know, and Vincent did that one. Um, other people have done other things, the the things that I, and and I hate to say this, but I'll say it, I'm trying to help people and it doesn't help the cause, but it will help individuals. I've heard many cases, many situations of parents, you know, almost exclusively, in fact, actually exclusively fathers who have been able to buy their way back into their children's lives and literally pay off the abductors. And pay them, pay them large sums of money just to have them be open to the possibility of seeing their kids. And then paying monthly support money, like large sums of money on an ongoing basis to, make, to stay in the children's lives. So basically, you're paying ransom. At the end of the day, parent, parents of means and parents that have the financial wherewithal can pay ransom, in many cases, to have access in their, cho- to be, in their children's lives. As soon as the money goes, so does the access. That's my advice. Other than that, you're you're it, it, at this point in this stage point in time, the state department's not doing anything. I think the state department is going to need a um, uh, some outside action to occur that might bring them to the table or bring them bring up bring to light their inaction. And the tools that they have that have been failing to use, they may become, may need to be called uh, and held accountable for. That may help the State Department, and we can do that through citizens and through other actions. Uh, But in a personal sense, uh, I hate hate using some of these cliched statements everybody uses, but don't give up hope. Use tools like the Find My Parent uh, tool. Connect with other left behind parents for support. Um, there are a lot, we've lost a lot of people to suicide, a lot of men um, to suicide, because again, predominantly in the case of abduction uh, with children, like to Japan, it's almost overwhelmingly women that take them. So it's fathers that are left behind. Some have lost their life, taken their own lives because they can't handle the pain. It's hard to get out of bed. I can tell you that um, there are days that it's uh, um, opening my eyes and seeing I'm still alive have been, I've been greeted with, Oh my God, still. Um, And so I have good days. I've had good days and bad days for the last seven years. Um, But there isn't a day that goes by. I don't think about my kids and I don't think I'm unusual in that. And there isn't a day that goes by that, that's just some point in my thought process, like, well, what if I tried this? You know? Um, And maybe, maybe if others have the same thought process, they're like, well, I'm going to try that. You know, I'll try that. But we do run out of energy after a while. This, this process, in, this, in the specific case of Japan, is designed to wear us out and give up, have us give up. That's how they set it up. It's, just, it's a war of attrition. They just want you to eventually lose your energy or ultimately lose your life. Because that's easy for them then. Particularly the Japanese. Oh, someone killed themselves. Oh, that's so sad. Oh, this is a terrible case. Well, anyways, well, it looks like it's resolved now. I mean, that's literally how it goes down over there. Um, and they're lazy. And they just want—they don't want conflict. They want people to work it out. And the ones that are willing to work it out are the ones that um, ultimately prevail. Uh, so that's in the case of Japan. It's some advice uh, abducted parents of other children to other countries. Just get in a network. I stand is another organization. They're really good. They're they're focused and they have connections to the, to the government. They do marches. They're in Washington a lot. Um, They're good people. They have support calls, Um, you know, contribute, contribute to that either in person or in cash also or money. Um, They're good. They're good folks. Uh, There are other ones that have other NGOs. Um, But yeah, just just get involved. You're not alone. And I want people to know that you're not alone. And and sometimes it's not it's not going to solve your problems like reaching out to everybody, but it's going to make seem less and maybe just enough less that you're like, yeah, I can do this for another day, a week, a month. You know? And um but yeah, that's in terms of on a very personal emotional level, connect with other people. Don't be alone in this. Um, because it's gut wrenching pain. It it's like I said, it's hard, it's hard to breathe sometimes. And um I, I understand that I empathize. I don't sympathize with people. I empathize. I'm in the hole with you. I've been there. And so I you know, I get it.
1: And my last question to you, James, is that say that somehow this podcast episode reaches to your kids and they're listening to it. What will your message be to them?
0: Oh, wow. So much that I always I've always practiced this conversation face to face. Um or as though it were occur face to face. But if they hear this, I do wow. First of all, there's much you've been told that's a lie and the only way you're ever going to learn that it was a lie is by actually talking to me and I can tell you what's a lie and what's not a lie. And I can also tell you what's truth. you know, because, and I also know that I, I know very, very, very well the people who have been telling you information and I, in one particular individual, I know how he lies. I know how he takes kernels of truth expounds on them and there are stories that are actually that he's written an affidavits. the actual opposite was the reality 180 degrees from what was written was the reality of it uh, but it was only rewritten to make me is the villain not the hero um, also this i am very very sorry to my children i'm very very sorry what happened in our life in our family between mom and i That is unfortunate. In my part, I'm very, very, very sorry for my part of it. Um, And I will take that regret and that upset with me for the rest of my life. And I would love an opportunity to apologize to you in person for it and talk to you about it. And I don't need to convince you I was right in any way at all. I just want to share with you where I was at. And so, so you can at least have some understanding and have you process that to the level that you're able to but ultimately i miss you much there's not a day i don't think about you i love you to my core um although i've if you can reflect on it i I don't ever use the words i'm proud of you because your life is your life to live as you see fit and how to your standards and what you want to achieve and my assessment of being you're you're good and i'm proud of you is not how i want you to think about it all or orientate your life i am proud of you Um, In terms of my older boys, I'm proud of what you've become and the environment you've been in. And and I really am happy for where you're going in life. And I wish you the best. Um, My youngest kids, I miss you. We never had a lot of time together in the years that you were here. And it was some of the worst years that, if you can even remember back that far, some of the worst years of my life were that time. And it wasn't because of you guys. It was because of the things grandpa did to me. Did to our family. And it was, and he indeed, and he indeed did a large amount of the damage that contributed to the destruction of our family. And that's a fact. And we can sit down, I can talk to you and explain to you all the background, which I'm sure he's never told you what went into that. And so, but again, I miss you tremendously. And I'm here for you whenever you want to come, you want to contact me. I'm only here to love you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to argue with you. I'm not here to tell you your mother's awful. I'm not here to tell you anybody's awful. I just miss you. And I want to be back in your life again. And part of your gentleness uh, that you have, my older boys, to, to the degree, one in particular, part of the gentleness that you have is from my spirit. I know that. I recognize that. I saw that. And as I said, in my testimony. I ache in my soul for your absence, and I want that to heal. And I want to the degree that I need it, or the degree as possible. I want your forgiveness, and so we can build a relationship. Because I was a very good dad to you guys. I mean, I have been a good husband to mom at times, but I was a very good dad to you. And I, you've missed a lot. We've missed a lot. And I'm someone that can be there for you for the remainder of your life for however long is. Do you want to con- be in contact with me, I can add to it.
1: That's my statement. Thank you, James, for that passionate episode with us. And I'm sure our listeners enjoyed and got inspired by the things that we spoke about. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor, or if you happen to have a difficulty in understanding certain parts of this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments regarding Find My Parent, or this interview or this podcast, you can email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent, And would like to find your parent again, please go to www.findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care. Till then. Hello. you have.